we're doing this for us uh, um, series on prayer called Effective Kingdom Prayer Series. And John James 5.16, if you look in Roman numeral 1 at our theme verses, James 5.16 tells us that there's more effective or less effective prayer. Uh, that's, that's very clear. Uh, prayer can be less or more effective. Now, we're not looking at formulas, as, as is often easy to do, but this is more of a lifestyle of how to walk with God. And, uh, of course, um, the first chapter of this series was, was uh, done this summer, and it was on uh, the idea that prayer is a catalyst to visitation. Um, really, uh, uh, you know, uh, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. If we uh, have Bible studies at Wright State, we uh, have a new outreach that we're uh, Starting, John, John and Emily are going to be having twice a month a home group for young married couples, uh, which is going to be oriented toward uh, parenting skills. And uh, if you don't have any kids or you're not pregnant, it, I, I started studying parenting skills uh, when I was single, and um, I still could have used more help. <laughs> Let's just say that's the best time to start uh, thinking about how to be a good parent is when you're not yet one. And uh, <laughs> so... We thought it would be a good thing to do since we have uh, three babies coming in mid-March. So, um, but, you know, we have various outreaches uh, that we do, the inner city ministry for kids down here at the school. Uh, we have three different programs there and so forth. You could uh, talk to one of the leaders of the church or something if you want to connect with any of those. But none of them will be effective if we don't undergird them with prayer. It's simple as that. Um, you can have Bible studies with people till you're blue in the face, but there's two truths that, that go into... Uh, I do a lot of Bible studies with non-Christians. I've developed a lot of materials for doing that. But there's two basic things. The Word of God does the work, and the Holy Spirit does the work. And God has privileged us to be planters, farmers, whatever metaphor you want to use, but God causes the growth. And... Um, that's as simple as that. Um, we sang a song at the beginning of the worship called Just As I Am. Now, those of you who are, uh, say, 40 and above uh, probably recognize that song as the song that was this, the main song of the Billy Graham Crusades from 19, I think, 39 was his first crusade up until recent times. And uh, I actually uh, attended a Billy Graham crusade in 1972 in Cleveland. My parents made me and uh, <laughs> didn't have any choice on that one. And I was such a reprobate that, and I, I thought I would just mention this. This is no extra charge, a little side, side uh, uh, point that, I, that really doesn't go with the message. But I really wanted us all to think about this. Um, you know, Jesus uses the analogy of being a fisher of men. And when I went to the Billy Graham crusade, I was a drug addict. I was... You don't want to know. Uh, you you want to let your parent your kids hang out with me. That's for sure. And um, during the message, the Holy Spirit actually moved on my heart, and I started thinking thoughts like maybe there's something to this. Now, frankly, it was just the beginning of God drawing me. I wasn't really ready to become a Christian or be converted or whatever. And we kind of have too much of a reaping mentality too soon sometimes. But I was so reprobate that I thought, maybe there's something to this, so I'll go down. 
because if I go now, my parents will get off my back. <laughs> well, not exactly the best motive to go down and do the prayer and sinner's prayer or whatever. But, you know, afterwards, uh, my dad shook my hand and said, congratulations, son. And, and uh, I got a little bit more room for a while. Uh, but, and I actually did read the Bible for about three weeks, and then I sort of forgot all about it. And here's what I want to help really want to say. I went into the world 10 times more aggressively after that. You know, I went from doing drugs a few times a day to doing drugs all day, uh, to selling drugs out of the chief of police's house and, and all kind of nutty stuff. Some, when you're fishing, there's probably a lot better qualified people to speak on this than me. So, but often, especially if you're, if you're fishing, uh, pole fishing, line fishing, one fish at a time. Sometimes when the fish starts getting close to the boat, maybe it's because they see that net or whatever, they see the boat, they go all a lot harder. And sometimes maybe you have to actually let them go because your line will break. And if, you're, if you are the, uh, doing evangelistic investigative Bible studies with someone, don't look at the outward performance of their life. Look at what God's doing in their heart. Because uh, one of the things that we have a tendency to do, I've had people tell me, why are you still having a, a Bible study with that person? When you started doing a Bible study with them, they were doing drugs. Now they're selling drugs, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so forth. But you know what? Uh, we don't know the work of God. What we do know is that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to him who believes. And sometimes if you just hang in there and don't give up, I've seen a lot of wonderful saints who, frankly, things got worse for a few years. So, and if you're, you're those of you who are parents or in situations like that with your kids and so forth, uh, continue to pray, continue to sow the scriptures in the kingdom of God, and uh let God do the work and don't judge it when, when I've had a lot of people say, well, I don't even want to share with this guy anymore. They're doing that. You know, they're living with their girlfriend or this or that or whatever. You know what? Unbelievers will be unbelievers and they're going to act like unbelievers. And frankly, the work of God, when they come to really trust Jesus, which really doesn't mean intellectual assent to the Christian ideas, but it means to encounter Jesus in such a way that God grants conviction of sin, re repentance. Romans 2, 4 says the kindness of God grants repentance. Acts eleven seventeen. after Peter's message, it says, they quieted down and said, so God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. These things are from God. Now, if you are just coming out of the world and you might be tempted by their lifestyle or whatever, take a friend. That's why Jesus sent people out in twos. But don't necessarily give up on someone because the outward behavior of their life is not necessarily reflecting uh, what God's doing. Be in your prayer closet and, and seek God as to what he's doing in their life. I have had people that God is by the grace of God, uh, through the Holy Spirit, through prayer, given me confidence that he's working in this person's life. And there was little outward evidence for two or three years. And uh, so don't, you know, those who you're praying for, those who you're sowing toward, don't give up. Uh, and that, that, uh, that first song we sang made me think of that. Well, that was, that was a freebie, no extra charge, uh, do with that.
hopefully what you will. Um, don't don't uh, forget that when you sow a seed, it takes a while to germinate, to start to develop, and eventually to bring a crop. And we have this very instant mentality in America, but don't give up on people so easily, is all I'm saying. And uh, continue to, to let God do his work in his time. Anyway, all right, so let's get into this. Uh, if you look at, I'm going to work off a of 3E. It says, God has chosen to bind his name. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm on Roman numeral one, new quote three. So toward the top of the page. God has chosen to bind his name, reputation, and purposes to his covenant people. All right, so what we are uh, doing, if you jump down to Roman numeral four, what we started in the first, uh, in the 930 hour, was uh, just, uh, we're at the part, chapter three of, the, of this series on, on effective kingdom prayer is called five types of prayer. And we've already covered, uh, they're available on the podcast. Frankly, some of the pod messages didn't come out as well as I'd hoped, so I don't know if they're, you should read and listen to them or not. They, uh, sometimes I, by the grace of God, have a good message. Sometimes it's a dud. I had a few duds on the, uh, some of these. But we're now at number four, intercession. And we, and we got as far as talking about principles of intercession. So if you have the first outline, uh, you'll get more detail off of that. But if you have the if you only have chapter three e down there at Roman numeral five, is seven principles of effective intercession. Again, these are not formulaic, so that if you do the right formula, God has to be manipulated to uh, do this. These are a way of life, and if you can get your mind around prayer, the Bible says to pray without ceasing. As a Christian walking by the Spirit, it's not that you're like always uh, saying prayers. It, but you should, the, the whole reason for starting the day early with God and so forth is we walk in the power of his spirit. We are constantly aware of him. We are, we are open to uh, leadings of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you leadings in sales calls. He'll give you, I mean, the, God wants you to walk with him. Uh, he'll, if you're a nurse, he'll give you leadings. Uh, if you're a teacher, if you're God, the Holy Spirit will help you in whatever he's called you to do. So, um, uh, if you can think of intercessory prayer as a posture toward life, uh, this will be of great benefit to all of us. Because of all the five types of prayer, intercessory prayer is probably the most important. In well, obviously, you can't argue with uh, Scripture as prayer. So, in, in terms of becoming the kind of person who becomes a conduit for God's kingdom, Intercessory prayer is indispensable, and it's and it's because of some of these principles. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to do number two first, then number one. Um, a person who I uh, who is an intercessor is a person who identifies with the sins of those for whom he's interceding. Does that make sense? Um, I'm looking to see if I have this verse on. Uh, on the back page, um, or if we have to turn there. Yeah, okay, so I, I want to I show us this principle. Obviously, Jesus is the greatest example of an intercessor. He became like us, according to Hebrews and other verses, in every way except sin. One of the things that I always, especially teenage guys and guys in their young 20s, 
I always help them understand. Do you know that Jesus had real temptations? And in a, on a certain level, theoretically, it would have, would have been possible for him to sin. When he goes through in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, goes through his temptations in the wilderness, that was a battle that, he turned, that determined eternal things. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. In fact, let's turn over to the, to the back and, and look under Roman numeral 6a. I'm kind of mixing these two messages together, so I'll tell you where to follow. Let's look, look at how Jesus lived out principles 1 and 2. Principles 1 and 2 is that an intercessor has a burden from the heart of God by the Holy Spirit that contains compassion for the lost. And the second is that the, he there, that an intercessor identifies with the sins of those for whom we're interceding. This, this, uh, I'm gonna, if I spend the whole time on this point, I, I'll be okay with that. In Hebrews 2, uh, look on the back page, Roman numeral 6a. Uh, of course, John 17 I, touches on that, which we already read. But Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says this. Therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things. He got hungry. He didn't like it when it was hot. He probably had thoughts at times like, I can't wait till they invent air conditioning. But uh, <laughs> so that he, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to the, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or atonement satisfaction for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted, and that's what he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I want to stop there and say this. You know, we in our, our culture is a sexually bombarded culture. There's billboard everywhere. We all know that. You know what? I, I am glad that I can go to a Jesus who really had real temptations. Otherwise, it wouldn't really work. You can, you can turn to God. If you have fears, you have anger management issues, you have uh, procrastination issues. What, whatever you're, the, the things you're dealing with, you're dealing with a Jesus who can be sympathetic to you because he had those real temptations, yet by the grace of God never sinned. And he knows how to empower you to walk in the spirit and walk above those things. And he's available now. Today is the day of salvation. Every, you know, God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says that no temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man. And God is faithful who with the temptation will uh, provide the way of, of escape. So that's actually 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I did a little dyslexic thing there. But uh, um, going on, uh, Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a, I got that part already. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if you've walked with the Lord any time at all, you know this. When you're in temptation, what the flesh wants to do is kind of ignore God and run from God. You want to kind of like fake God out that you're not really struggling with this or that, or you want to go through various uh, mental gyrations to sort of not acknowledge God. What You'll start to grow in the Lord as soon as you realize that with every temptation, you can draw near to the throne of grace right then. And you can come clean. And God, you don't have to try to fake God out. No, I'm not really lusting, Lord. <laughs> you know? uh, 
as if he didn't know. We actually do do these mental things as part of our sin nature. We can you can just go and say, God, I'm a, you know I'm a luster or I'm arrogant or boy I wasn't very gracious there. God help me, I'm being tempted to be condescending. Whatever it is, instead of kind of making mental gyrations to try to kid yourself into thinking you're not dealing with it, just admit it. That's what confession means. The Greek word is homologeo. Homo meaning the same thing, and logos meaning the word. It means to say the same thing that, that God says. So we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one that's been tempted in every way, yet without sin. Therefore, we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace in time of need. Jesus is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always leads to make lives to make intercession for him. Just humble yourself, whatever it is, fears. One of the things I love about this little building here is I used to be tormented by tremendous fears. And I was so much tormented by fears that, uh, and you know, God set me free the first few years of being a Christian. But this is one of the first buildings that I, I used to have when we first bought this building. My sons were a little too young back then to be sent down to get the trash on Wednesday nights. And uh, now my son Sam has to do that. <laughs> but I used to come down and do the trash. And I remember thinking, wow, I used to actually be afraid to go into a, a, you know, a building at night, uh, especially in a tough neighborhood with no one around. But over time, the Bible says perfect love cast out all fears. It's not something that you just try to overcome. It's something as you love God and walk with God and you have a deeper relationship, fears start to disappear in your life. And uh, I, I actually kind of love that. I love to actually, whenever I have a reason that I have to come down here and get a book at night or whatever, I love the fact that I, I couldn't have even gone in to a, a building in a tough neighborhood by myself after dark uh, when I was a young man. And, you know, now I, I enjoy it. So, um, let's also jump down to point D. I want to read about Nehemiah with us. And I'm really emphasizing that uh, a mature intercessor identifies with the sins for the, of those he, he's interceding for. Do you know, again, we're saying in Hebrews, Jesus came and lived an intercessory life. And he, Hebrews 8, 13, 8 says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you know what Jesus is doing for you every day, whether you know it or not? He's actually continuing that mission of being an intercessor for you before the Father every day. So... Um, that's awesome. Let's look at how Nehemiah did this. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Pay attention to these uh, verses because all seven of these principles are in here. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying uh, before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned. 
I will tell you, you will never be fruitful evangelistically till you actually believe in your heart that you're no better than anyone that you're living, leading to Christ and that you are who you are by the grace of God. If, if you think you have one ounce of righteousness that came from your good upbringing or your better discipline or, or whatever flimsy thinking you have, you will never, never have effective prayer for, for the lost, nor, nor have an ongoing ministry of consistently reaching lost people for Christ. You have to be totally aware, but that thereby, but by the grace of God, go I. So back to Nehemiah, he says, we have sinned. I love this because there's no place in Scripture that it, can, that it records any of Nehemiah's sins. Nehemiah was one of the most godly, righteous people in terms of his level of sanctification and his level of maturity in Christ of all the saints of the Bible. Yet he said, we have sinned. He didn't say those rotten Israelites have sinned. <laughs> right? That's very, really so important. We have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep the commandments and do them, Though none of you who have been scattered were in the most remote, or though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I'll bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be tentative to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to rever your name and make your servants succeed today and grant. Uh, him compassion before this man. Now, if you only have three, go back to the front page. We're going to go through these seven principles uh, as best I can um, and discuss them a little bit. So we've already touched on how an intercessor has a burden for, uh, from the heart of God by the Holy Spirit that, contain, con that contains ongoing compassion for the lost. And you have to put these two together all the time. It, uh, he or she identifies with the sins for those whom he or she is interceding with. We saw that in Jesus. We saw that in Nehemiah. Isaiah 53, 12 is a summary of the great chapter. I, Isaiah 53 is one of the probably uh, top, it could be the top one in some people's views. It's certainly one of the top five or seven most clear chapters foreshadowing Christ. The whole Testament foreshadows Christ and as God opens your eyes to see how to do biblical imagery and, and uh, types of Christ and so forth, you'll see Christ in every page of the Old Testament more and more. Uh, it, you know, one of our goals at Grace Christian Fellowship is to give your Old Testament back to you. I, I am so often... Uh, one, of the, the, one of my favorite guys that I've been discipling the last uh, quite a few months was a fairly stable Christian, four years in the Lord when I met him and so forth and growing and so forth. And he said, well, I've never read the Old Testament. I tried sometimes, but I, I don't know how to get anything out of it. And uh, believe me, um, if, that's, if that's the case for you, please talk to, say, John or Emily or myself, uh, Catherine, 
Because if you had uh, Jesus in, in Luke 24 opened their eyes to understand the scriptures because he opened their eyes to see how they're all about him. If you get the keys to finding Jesus on every page, the Old Testament will become so exciting that I'll have to remind you that you're a college student, you need to study for biology too. But, uh, <laughs> um, so, um, hopefully we get this. So Isaiah 53, it, it sums up the chapter saying this, because he, Jesus, poured out his, himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So when Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He's not just praying. He's expressing the direction of his entire being. His whole life was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He came to stand in the gap, which is another, is the literal definition of intercession, to stand between God and those who are lost and those who are under the wrath of God and under the judgment of God and so forth, to be a conduit of turning the tables to mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, etc. That's what the church is called to do, to continue the ministry of Jesus. The book of Acts is not really the Acts of the Apostles, that's a shortened name, but it's the continuing Acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the early church to continue Jesus' ministry until the kingdom of God fills the whole earth. That's the full name of the book of Acts. <laughs> so, it, you know, calling it Acts is a little easier. But um, that's really... So, um, I, I really can't stress this thing about identifying with the sin of the people. Now, uh, people get on me a little bit because pastors aren't supposed to do this stuff. I, I tell people my sin's too much. I, you're supposed to have this image that you don't sin or whatever. Well, you know, frankly, a pastor is just a guy who God's been sanctifying for a while. And in the process, not only did they study, but they sort of took notes on what God was doing. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I wish I could tell you different. I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings or shock anybody. But this has been a real battle area in my life and my wife's life. We, we con con confront each other about this all the time. We pray about this all the time. But it's simple as this. I was raised in a ritzy suburb. I uh, was raised in a place where everybody's supposed to go to college. And, uh, the, you know, the worst thing my dad could say to me is that because I was screwing up so much, you're going to be a ditch digger, which meant you're not going to go to college. You're going to, you're going to work uh, blue-collar work instead of white-collar work, and somehow this was supposed to be, of course, that's not very biblical, but uh, <laughs> uh, somehow this was, you know, less good. And, um, you know, uh, I became uh, an honor student, and I majored in liberal studies, and I went on for a master's in history, and I studied a lot about different cultures of the world and different time periods. And one of the things I studied about was the culture of, of poverty in, 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 in America for a number of reasons, really beginning in the early 60s for, for reasons that I don't want to touch on. Uh, we began to create a permanent culture of inner city poverty. And more and more of the culture is being dragged into that culture of poverty over time. It's not just for uh, people living in the cities and so forth. It's just the whole cultures get going there. This happened in the Roman Empire and it's year, years of decline and so forth. It's, it's uh, 
a phenomenon as to what all the reasons are, I don't want to go into right here. But I'm ashamed to say that inner city churches and inner city kids and what they're up against and stuff was a theory in a book to me. Um, my wife and I start, started starting campus ministries in the 70s. Several of them grew into churches. That was the plan. And uh, um, the truth of the matter is our churches, because we went on college campuses and, and led college upwardly mobile kind of people to Christ, and we uh, discipled them. And back then, usually it's a little bit different now, but if you uh, were going to college, you probably had some sense of deferred gratification and some character qualities already and things like that. Now that's getting less and less the case, um, especially I teach at Sinclair Community College. That's seldom the case anymore. But um, nevertheless, the path to, uh, we had pretty high standards of leadership, and each of our campus ministries would have a leadership team of five to seven people. And it normally only took around two or three years to get someone qualified to do that. In all, and we would use the, the qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as to elders, or 1 Timothy 3, and uh, Titus chapter 1. And uh, lots of people could get to that kind of level in a, in a few years. And uh, occasionally I had a few people point out to me, you know, you're the pastor of yuppie churches. <laughs> no, there's, everybody's a college graduate. Everybody's upwardly mobile. There's lots of people are starting successful businesses and getting their master's degree. And you got lawyers and doctors and, and, and all that. Uh, one of the things God did to, to, to begin to open my eyes was uh, a, a wonderful family who loved their kids and loved the Lord, uh, visited our church, and he worked in a factory. He wasn't very well educated. And he came up to me after church on the Sunday, and he said, boy, this is the friendliest church we've ever been to. And we've never experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in the worship like this anywhere. We would really like to be find out more about this, and we think we'd like to be part of this. But we have to say, we have to say that when you gave your message, it went way over our heads. We didn't understand a thing you were saying. And the truth of the matter is, Everybody in our church was a college student or a college graduate. Well, many of you know the story that in the 1990s, I left the ministry for 12 years to do a lot of things, become a better husband, be a better father, uh, study further the, the biblical models of how we need, what we would need to do to get back to a, a real biblical Christianity and these kind of things. And, and during that time, I coached inner city baseball teams. And all of a sudden... I began to realize that kids were growing up with no parents. I had kids whose parents didn't come to a single practice or game in four years. I had kids whose parents were in jail and couldn't come. Uh, 
almost all the kids' parents had some big types of problems like alcoholism or drug addiction or what have you and so forth. And you know what? I found out that these were kids just like your kids. And um, in 2003, I walked away from our rich, big, mega church and said, we got, I've got to do something about this. We don't know what we're doing. We've, I've been studying books on, on the culture of poverty versus the culture of the kingdom for the last several years. And, and uh, we uh, quit our big church and came here and bought this little building and started in. But that's a long story to say this. It has been a journey and I, I hope you can. I, I hope you're humble enough to identify with this, because frankly, you all have the same problem too. We all do. It has been a journey, not thinking when I work when I work with people who are drug addicts, who can't read, whose lives are broken, who uh, and and now it's more and more college graduates and and business professional people and all kind of people. It's just where our culture's going. But I had this kind of like, I'm better than you spirit sometimes. And I would sit on my porch and watch inner city people walk by, and you could see in their spirit how, how demonic their lives were at times, how, how broken, how oppressed. Uh, you see that when you go to Kroger's and so forth. But I had sort of this little, like, you know, uh, holier-than-thou thing and, or more educated-than-thou kind of thing. We all have it. And... You have to ask God to take you to a place where you just realize, you know what? I was a drug addict for six years. You know, what? what's the difference? You know, I'm actually thankful that, you know, I, I wasn't in the college prep classes in high school because I was not considered college prep material. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, I was accepted to college on a probationary program. Now some Christians discipled me, and I became an honor student and all that kind of thing. But it was by the grace of God through a body of Christians who helped me get there. So when I'm talking about identifying with the sins of those for whom he's interceding, I said I'd be glad if I only covered that today. I'm really talking about something that we all think we're further along in, and you have to ask God to break you. You have to have God to humble you. If you have to be sitting across from someone who smells bad, whose English vocabulary is limited, and um, who has no social skills or, or whatever, and that person becomes your friend. I, I am very happy that by God's grace, some, uh, some people who started at that place are really are my best friends. They're the people I hang out with on, on the porch, so to speak. Uh, I, I can't stress this principle enough. And uh, if uh, we all, if you would be honest before God, you're not as far along toward identifying with the sins of those for whom you're interceding as what you need to be. And a lot of it gets down to when God's grace works on you, you'll eventually have a perspective where you see more the logs in your own eyes and see less the specks in others' eyes. And when you get there, Jesus said, then you'll see clearly. You actually don't see clearly until that's a reality for you. And that's, people talk about radical Christianity. That is radical Christianity. Uh 
when they're in your house, they're in your car, they're over for dinner, and they have any number of problems, and you have to remind yourself that they're but by the grace of God go I, and, and that God works that progressively into your whole demeanor and your whole character. I hope that makes sense. I am going to get on to some other points for a little bit, but I, if, if that's the one point you got and you basically were courageous enough to say before God, take me there, this would be one of the most important messages you ever heard because you have to get there. That's the key to being a nurse, a teacher, a businessman. That's the key to being a, an evangelist, a, a pastor. It's, it's really the key to every, everything. Now, thirdly, inter, <clears throat> excuse me, intercessors appeal to God for forgiveness, and I just didn't have enough room, restoration, redemption, sanctification, etc., based on his covenant and his covenant faithfulness. Remember where Nehemiah, uh, again, we read, read that one, and uh, Nehemiah began, reminds God of his covenant towards Israel through Abraham, etc. I I doubt I'll get to Daniel today, but if you want to do yourself a favor, read Daniel 9 and 10 and look for these seven principles in Daniel's prayer. But Daniel starts with identifying himself with the sins of the people and reminding God of his covenant promises. Nehemiah says to God, remember you told Moses, you put it in the scriptures, it's part of our covenant package with you, that if we sin, you would drive us from our land. But if we humbled ourselves and returned to you, you would bring us back to the land, no matter how far we're dis dispersed. And if you know anything about the Jewish history, of course, 722 became the, the dispersion of the northern kingdom. 586 the, uh, B.C., the dispersion of the southern kingdom. And when Nehemiah and Ezra went back, only around 3 to 5% of God's people ever went back to Jerusalem. The scripture actually in some places records the numbers of people. It was a very, very, very small percentage of people. Whenever God takes people back in a pioneering movement to more biblical truth and so forth, it, it spills over to serve the whole church. But there's always going to be a small percentage of people who are willing to take that journey. And uh, a key to taking that journey effectively is to pray like Nehemiah and understand that maybe because God has called us to take this journey doesn't make us any better than anyone else who doesn't even see the importance of the journey or any of that. That's very important. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, those of you who have been scattered, though you are in the remotest part of the earth, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. That's, of course, uh, what is the call of God on the church today. We have... Um, many, many things that we think that aren't as scriptural as we think they are, and we need God to take us to the land. Um, it, so again, intercessors appeal to God for forgiveness, for re reconciliation, for redemption, 
for restoration of his people based on his covenant and his covenant faithfulness. Because back to new quote number three, God has chosen that to bind his name and his reputation, he is inextricably intertwined with the, with the lifestyle of his people. As Paul brings out in Romans, the name is, of God is blaspheming because of the sins of people. When the church is the church, God's name will be revered in a society. We actually always get all upset at the world. Oh, those bad sinners, they're pushing the envelope further and further in sin and so forth and all that. But that's actually a tool God has given us to judge the, the, uh, the depth and the reality of our Christianity. We're the salt of the earth. If, if, we, if the church is the church, salt stops corruption. We're the light of the world. If the church is really the church, they're actually coming to us for answers. There's not many areas that the world is looking to the church for the answers right now because we're not actually living the answers. So the first thing we need to start is, is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We need to start this intercession thing for ourselves and just say, Lord, our Christianity is so some biblical we can't even know. Help us. Open our eyes. Uh, we, because your, your purposes are for your people to manifest your glory. Take us there, Lord. Take us to a kind of temple where your Shekinah glory would be pleased to dwell in power. Many times in the Old Testament, when Moses finished building the tabernacle, when Solomon finished building the temple, the glory of God became so deep that the priests couldn't minister before God. People had to leave. And we, we are so used to looking we're supposed to walk by faith, not by sight, by scripture, not by, by the models we've seen, but we mostly are controlled by the models we've seen. And we're, we're so used to having low expectations that we don't realize we have a better covenant. The book of Hebrews says that three times in Jesus. The whole New Testament says that in multiple ways. And that kind of power that was in the ministry of Christ and was in the ministry of the apostles there's no biblical reason to expect it's supposed to be anything less. The, the problem is with us. You know, those commercials, the problem is not in your set. Well, unfortunately, the problem is in our set. And intercession starts with acknowledging that. I'm, I'm not all that, like, we think we're all really bad Christians, so to speak, bad in the, in the, you know, the way the world says, we're bad, we're bad. We're, you know, we got to start with saying, Lord, we're bad, but in, not that way. <laughs> anyway, number four, uh, biblical intercessors understand the purpose of God in, in his or her generation. Um, I don't have enough time to go there, but Daniel, it says that, now I, Daniel, observed in the books that the years for Jerusalem's desolation were 70 years. What books is he talking about? He's talking about the prophet Jeremiah. Daniel's basically saying, I understand what God's doing right now because I read Jeremiah. That's the thing that scares me the most. You know, when God, when we read about Abraham here, think about, think about Abraham. God actually says, shall I do this thing without telling my friend Abraham? Now, a kind of idea, an eschatology that expected the world to get darker and darker and darker and the church to lose ground 
began to be popular in the 1890s. It was a brand new idea. It had no, no roots in anything in the history of Christianity. And it has swept the church to be the dominant paradigm of, of what we're supposed to be working for. But God is going to fill the earth with his glory, and he's going to restore his church. And Ezra and Nehemiah are just foreshadowings of all that God is going to do. And God doesn't want to, God will tell his friends what he's going to do. And when he is about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, think about it. Abraham's only interest in, selfish interest in Sodom and Gomorrah was Lot and his wife, who had betrayed him. Now, I don't know if Abraham was that intense because of Lot, but I have a feeling it's a lot more than that. Uh, he, he becomes one of the great intercessors. And he bargains God down from 50 people to five. Unfortunately, there, there weren't enough people even then to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham worked hard at it. Uh, maybe because of Lot, but again, pun intended, maybe for a lot more than that. I, I honestly believe Abraham was a man of God, just doing what we're called to do. All right, next principle uh, is, um, oh, an inter this is very important. Uh, intercessors appeal to God for the sake of his reputation in his name. Now, here, here's one of my favorites. Moses, uh, at, after he comes down from the mountain and the Lord gets, uh, is, you know, tell, warns Moses that they've made a golden calf and they're having an orgy and it's, you know, all, all kind of disgusting things are going on and idolatry and wickedness and so forth. It's interesting that God calls the people at that point. He says to Pete, to Moses, uh, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> in other words, God disowns them in a, in, on a certain level. Now, if you know the full history of the Bible, one of the things you understand is that in Matthew 23, uh, after Jesus' uh, classic covenant lawsuit that happens all through the book of Matthew, he sums it up in Matthew 23, 37, 39 by saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones that are sent there. And then he, he says, Behold, your, your city, your temple is left to you desolate. Well, the Greek there... Uh, goes back to the Hebrew word Ichabod. I, he called, Jesus earlier had called it my temple, but now he says your temple. He disowns it. And he says there's going to be no presence there and there's going to be no glory. And then he says you won't see me again until you can say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How you receive God, those who God sends to you, whether you like the package or not, is really how you've received God. And so um, God does this same thing with Moses. He says, I'm disowning these people. Whereas in Jesus' time, that was part of all the fulfilled scriptures of the Old Testament. In Moses' time, that wasn't ready yet. Moses understands the purposes of God. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. Most people think Job too. I, I also agree with that. So Moses says this. Let's, let's look at this on, uh, let's see. 
uh, if, if you have an outline D, it's under point six. Some of you don't have outline D if you want to turn there. Oh, wait, it's, uh, it's, also, in, uh, it's also in outline E under uh, point six C on the back page. Exodus 32, 10 through 14. Uh, yeah, the, the one on, on, uh, on outline E is actually more complete. I started in verse 7. So let's, or no, yeah, the, I did. So now, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people, that's the point I just made, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I wonder if Moses was thinking, me? You know, <laughs> this is, I was minding my business tending my father-in-law's sheep when you interrupted me. Uh, sheeps is the plural for sheep. And, no, I'm just kidding. Um, now then, let me alone that I'm, my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated, he interceded to the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? Moses gives them back to God whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. That's an important part of intercession. You know, if you have any kind of ministry, whatever, the kids are not your kids. The college students are not your college students. You have to constantly remember their stewardship and give them back to God. Jesus said, I will build my church. This isn't Grace Christian Fellowship's church. None of us own this. The Lord does. Why does your anger burn against your people? Why should the Egyptians speak? See, he's appealing to God for the sake of his reputation. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Now, that is awesome intercession. Remember, remember that we the, one of the points that... Uh, repeals to God for the forgiveness on the base of his covenant, point three. He says, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel. You know, what? This is aud- you know, intercession is audacious before, you're humble before man and you're actually kind of bold before God. He's basically saying, hey, Lord, I think you're losing a little perspective here. Remember your declared covenantal purposes. God wasn't, God was giving Moses an opportunity to be used this way. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all of this land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit for, forever. So the Lord relented, some translations say, changed his mind about the harm he, would do, he said he would do to his people. Now, this is awesome stuff. He reminds God of his declared scriptural purposes. He reminds God of the purpose for this generation. He identifies with the sins of those. He, he does all these st- steps. He, number six, he appeals to God for the sake of his re- reputation. And, uh, he, and the Lord changes his mind, so he perseveres, which will be my last point in a minute. Excuse me, my mouth gets dry. Um, he, he perseveres to victory. He does all seven of these things here. Okay, now, I, I want you to think about this for a second. When God says, I will destroy them and I'll make of you a great people. Sorry, I get emotional, I apologize. Think, think about the, what, what God is offering Moses there is, I'm going to make you Abraham and Moses. I'm going to start of you to be the covenant father of, of an entire nation of people. We're going to start over again. 
right? And Moses has, I, you know, I, I think in terms of the str- selfish ambitions we struggle with and the self-promotions that are, that are in, in the uh, church today with TV and radio and all kind of different ways, I think this is an awesome thing. Moses is turning down a great offer because he cares more about God's reputation and God's covenant purposes. This would, this would be, in the end, fulfilling his covenant to Abraham because he was a descendant of Abraham. But remember, God said that, that, sent, that he would send them to Egypt because the sins of the Amalekites, the Canaanites, and so forth wasn't mature yet. Now they were mature. So going through another 400-year process would have thrown everything off. Right? And it would have given the, the nations of the world a chance to blaspheme against God. Do you remember when David sinned, when Nathan the prophet confronted him? One of the things he stresses is you've given the nations a chance to blaspheme. That's something we are not as mindful of as we should. Our, God's reputation is inextricably intertwined with the, with the, 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 the quality of our marriages, the quality of our uh, work ethic, our worship, uh, who we are in every way. He's making Moses a great F offer here. But Moses cares more about God. He cares more about God's timetable as revealed in Scripture, which he wrote. It was the instrument of God in writing. He cares more about all seven of these points than he cares about his own advancement. It's an awesome thing. Well, lastly, um, intercession perseveres until victory or deliverance is manifested and complete. You know what? The Bible's full of, read Hebrews 11, for instance. Uh, The best, I'm not going to turn there because I'm I'm way past my time. Luke 11, Luke 18. Uh, My favorite one is 2 Kings Chapter 13, verse 14 through 19, which is on the back of one of the outlines. Um, One of the things that we're all tempted to do is we're tempted to be humble, to work extra hard, to pray, to, to sow, to do whatever, until we get a certain measure of relief or a certain measure of victory. But God's purpose is to fill the earth with his glory. The prophets declare that the, 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 the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. This is not a after Jesus comes back verse. That's a really bad interpretation of it. This is a before Jesus comes back verse. Um, a, an intercessor doesn't give up easy. And in fact, uh, I'm not going to turn there, but Luke 11, when he ends it by saying, knock, ask, and seek. We have a problem in English where we only have three verb tenses, whereas the Greek has seven. So it's always a little hard. I think the New American Standard is the best on verb tenses. The English Standard Version is the best on presuppositions, and they're two, probably the most literal translations on the market, uh, except for Young's literal translation, which is in 18th century English, so you probably don't want to read it. Uh, it's a great one, though. Um, but the Greek actually means this. Ask and keep continually asking. 
Knock and keep continually knocking. Seek and keep continually seeking. Um, you know, my son, John, who's, uh, I guess, on the grill now, <laughs> normally is up here, shared with me, I don't know, five or seven years ago, he, he said, you know, if we have a vision that can be lived out in one lifetime, it will be way too small a vision. Okay, the Bible is always about the next generations. I have had all kinds of older people that are 40 and up tell me they don't want to invest in college students or young people or whatever. That is part of our narcissism and our shallowness, to be honest. The Bible is always about the next generation. It's about your grandchildren. It's about your grandchildren's grandchildren. It's about really looking at building the kind of church that will really start to get hit the numbers and, and, all, and come into its maximum influence a long time after you're gone. When there will be pictures of uh, Jason and Larry and me and Sydney in the back, and there will, kids will be putting bubble gum on them, and they'll be laughing, laughing at uh, you know the style of glasses we wore or how fat I was or whatever, uh, and, and they'll have no idea what it is we paid to give them. Amen. <laughs>